Welcome to the show. Uh, this is Elson. You are a part of Infinity License episode 57. 57, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, with Brian Pisano, which is you. That's me. And me, which is Lenny DeFranco. And sitting here with us, we have Allison Kuzer. Allison, Hello. How's it Hi. going? Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Uh, based on your what you've introduced to us via email, you're easily going to be our nicest guest. <laughs> <laughs> most of our guests are bad. Yeah, most of our guests are, are friends of ours that are just, you know, either lazy or incompetent or... <laughs> so I'm just describing Ben now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, ben, yeah. Well, you could keep going with uh, descriptors for Ben. Yeah, <laughs> just negative uh, descriptors. But, you know, on all our ground, nice guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Allison and I went to high school together. And actually before that, too, at Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, and uh, we reconnected because recently um, you came... Actually, for the last couple of years... You've been like coming across my like Facebook feed. I have not been coming across yours because I basically never use Facebook because I'm <laughs> bad at it. But um, recently, uh, you posted uh, something on Facebook about a year of conscientious consumerism. I, that's m the term that I keep referring to it as. Yes, yeah, so that makes it sound very official. Um, I tend to call it a no buying year, but <laughs> conscious consumerism works a little better. A no buying year. <laughs> Let's just start with like where you where you're coming from. So, yeah. um, okay, so the so the last time that we were in touch was basically in high school. The last thing I think the right after we split up our lives, you and um, you and you went on a trip with J.P. Erickson. Oh yeah. Tell me, give me a summary of what you've been up to since then. <laughs> okay, so that trip, I was 19, so it's been a little while. Um, so yeah, I went to college at Davidson in North Carolina, a small liberal arts school. I Steph studied. Curry. Yeah, I was, yeah. In, <laughs> I was in Steph Curry's class. We were good friends. It's my little humble brag. Nice. Really? Um, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a real fact. Um, <laughs> what is briefly, what is Steph Curry like? Steph Curry is awesome. He is, as the media paints him to be a really nice guy, really down to earth, really cool. It's he all real. He and his daughter are so cute. It's true. They, yeah, they're, they're great. It's, yeah. it's hard to hate that guy. I yeah. know. Yeah. And it's real. That's the thing. Media sometimes can paint whatever picture they want, but it's the real deal. He's great. Um, so yeah, I went to Davidson. I studied world religion and Spanish. So um, Spanish major here too. Yeah. Nice. Hola. Great. <laughs> Let's Hola. do a Spanish episode. Let's not. <laughs> no, it's not. It'll be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so really, I loved being at a liberal arts school. I loved learning those things. It's not necessarily the most uh, job transferable, let's say. Um, but <laughs> while I was in college, I did get the opportunity to start traveling some and spent some time in the developing world, which is when I first kind of had my eyes open to these areas of the world that I found really interesting and compelling um, that a lot of people tended to ignore. I also, in school, learned to write. Um, that is the benefit of a religion major is you write one million papers, basically. <laughs> so I came out of school with some decent communication skills, uh, propensity to travel, and a lot of knowledge about like small, tiny bits of Buddhism and Hinduism and Mormonism and all these things. Um, Immediately out of college, I moved to Maryland to go to business school and get an MBA and with a concentration in finance, which is a big jump. Um, <laughs> we, so, know, we know some of these people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. A, a theological MBA uh -huh. is your educational background. Yes, it is. So um, ended up in business school at a brand new program at Johns Hopkins that they were just at the time 
starting to shape and define, which for me being pretty atypical for a business school student was awesome because it gave me the flexibility to pursue things that I wanted to study that were a little bit outside the norm of someone who wanted to be an investment banker or a consultant or something. Um, so I ended up having the opportunity to go to Africa for the first time in business school. Um, I did a project for the Ministry of Health of Rwanda and fell in love with East Africa at the time and really came out of school knowing, okay, development, broadly speaking, big, I mean, it's a huge industry. That was something that was interesting to me and I wanted to pursue further. Um, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't really know what jobs existed, but that was kind of the direction. Um, I also happened to now have some business skills, which turned out to be useful a few years later. Um, so yeah, after business school, I got a job with an organization called Opportunity International, which is based in Chicago. It's a global microfinance organization. And I have proceeded to work with them in various capacities since 2012, um, still to this day in various ways. Um, so that was awesome. And I think some of the big things coming out of that experience were learning about the importance of what I now refer to as bridge building, but essentially you have all these nonprofit organizations that rely upon donor funding from what we would call the West, right? United States, Canada, Europe, Australia. Um, the global to, North. Right, the global North. Um, to fund all these programs in other parts of the world. And the people who are benefiting from donor funding tend to be very far away from the people giving the donor funding. Um, and it's this forever challenge of how do you link those two groups of people to make it personal, to make it compelling, to make it feel like um, you see the impact of what you're doing, right? Um, so I started doing that in a variety of ways through marketing, et cetera. Um, and really that became what I loved to do was figure out how to use stories to connect people who are far away from the work that they're trying to influence. So, okay, now fast forward end of 2015, I leave my full-time role at Opportunity because I decide to pursue a lifelong dream and backpack around the world. Um, so yeah, so for a year, I lived out of a backpack. I went to 37 countries over the course of 2016 and oh, saw the world. Oh my God. Did, did, you go, <laughs> did you go to any of the places on your trip where you sp explicitly going to places that maybe you had done microfinance work for? Or yeah. Your organization? So it was a combination. So the first half, let's say, uh, seven months worth, uh, was really just this was a lifelong dream. I was 27 at the time and thought, you know what? I don't have a family. I don't have people who are depending on me. This is the moment to do it if I'm going to do it. Um, so I packed a bag and went, and that was a combination of a few projects. That's kind of ironic given that you then proceeded to do nothing but travel. I know. <laughs> this is what happens. If you start traveling, people think it will quench your travel lust, right. but actually it just feeds it. That's also kind of, that's. I think that's a great story about like, you know, the things that you are, you're, you feel so urgently the pull to do might also be the things that you just choose to keep doing. Oh, totally. You know? I mean, that's completely the case. And I think, I mean, travel is the best example. Anyone I ever know who's traveled, a lot will tell you that all they want is to keep traveling more. I will say that I, I actually do have a cousin uh, her, or like a family member who uh, one time uh, we see him like every year at Thanksgiving and that's it. Um, and uh, he came back one time from a trip to I think Colorado and he was like, and it's just the same, but they got mountains. <laughs> like, okay. So that guy is your all one right. person. Fine. <laughs> there's gotta be one, right? But yeah, it also depends on, I think, you seem a you're a smart person and probably does a, like you seem like you 
do your research on where you're going. I think a lot of people that don't like to travel ultimately are people that are like, I just like this. They're kind of have a closed mindset kind totally. of people. And they're like, I just, I just need to go to where I can get food yeah. and go to the grocery store and watch TV and then watch the Bears game on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, be you know, comfortable, luxuriate. Totally. Yeah, like, like there are people that are just like, well, Denver is just mountains and then they have the Broncos instead of the Bears. So right. it's just kind of like, uh, you know. Yeah, it takes an yeah. inclination for exploring and meeting people. And I guess right. it benefits me that I'm an extrovert because I meet people when I go places right. and all of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so traveling was a way for me to meet people who were very different than myself and kind of broaden my horizons and perspectives, but never in a sense of like, I need to escape or I need to find right. something that I can't find mm -hmm. at home. Yeah. Uh, on that point, um, I, I'm curious uh, the, your opinions on microfinance at this point, because <laughs> I, over the course of the, I mean, I never like worked anywhere nearly as deeply in like the development field as you did. I just was kind of interested in it from afar. Mm -hmm. And when we were in college, there was this sort of moment where there was like William Easterly um, had come out and was like, you know, it, the the outputs need to be tied to the inputs of development aid, and there was a woman named Dambisa Moyo who uh -huh. I did a report on, who was like, who is advocate. <coughs> she was a from she was an African woman, and she was saying like, w I, she wanted to c entirely cut off all Western aid to yep. any developing nation because you know, and I think those are extremist views. But um, what was interesting, I, th I think that the point that they all had was that there was this sort of um, there was this pat on the back, altruistic or, or self-righteous feeling that, you know, privileged people that were donating money would have, but then it wasn't tied to anything. Mm -hmm. And like, even just clearing up that sort of like that mechanism would help. And I think that the central sort of innovation or, or the, the theory of microfinance was that the way to tie that, like you were saying, how do you make that link closer mm -hmm. is to try to exploit the motivations uh, that it basically drive the market mm -hmm. like if i see my money doing something then i will have achieved a connection with it um i don't know do you think that that is that's like the operative theory and, and like also what do you think of microfinance <laughs> well i'll start with the the microfinance question um I think there was a period of time when, when the development world thought of microfinance as this pansia, this this hero system, right, that was going to solve all the problems and use free market economics to fix poverty, right? It, I think, objectively has proven to not be that, nor should it be. I mean, extreme poverty is an ex incredibly nuanced problem. We're not going to solve it with any one solution. The whole point is that it's going to require a lot of different things happening simultaneously, not only from an economic standpoint, but also, you know, healthcare, clean water, education, infrastructure, um, safety and security, corruption, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these factors are all at play um, and impact the ability for people to create any sort of sustainable income. So that's piece one. However, I think that there are some really interesting things about the microfinance model um, and opportunity in particular, because that's where I've spent the most time and know most about their model. Um, that have made it a lot more nuanced and a lot more successful. Um, I often cite the thing that I think is one of the biggest kind of breakthroughs in microfinance is when there was a shift toward micro savings. So creating a safe place for people to keep money and not just borrow money kind of transformed a lot of things for the world because all of a sudden what a savings account really allows you to do is make a plan, right? If you can't hold money anywhere safely, if you're burying it or if you are holding it in a tin can in your house or giving it to a neighbor for safekeeping, you aren't sure that tomorrow that money's going to be there, right? And so if your plan is, I want to send my kid to college, well, that's great. You can't actually work toward that goal because there's 
functionally know where to put the money. Um, so I think savings was a huge shift in the microfinance model to be able to be a more comprehensive suite of services beyond just lending, which sometimes works great and sometimes doesn't work as great because it depends on the entrepreneurial character of the people receiving the money. It, it, it's such an expression. The microfinance movement, I think, speaks a lot to... I, I agree. I was I work I've worked a lot in my career in nonprofits yeah. as well, and I was very big on, on microfinance early on. And I did a lot of I guess you'd say financial education work in the nonprofit mm-hmm. world, where I did um, uh, not only financial education courses, but like um, doing stuff where it was uh, we're doing free tax returns for low income. Oh, families, awesome! That kind of stuff. So it's called Vita program, Volunteer okay. Income Tax Assistance Program. Enough about me though. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that similarly, I think I had a sim- maybe a little bit of a similar career track, and a lot of people of our generation signed up on the way to like, oh, this is actually this is the ultimate neoliberal solution to global poverty. Right. It's like we just throw money at the problem. The people here have money, and then you can now we have the internet. You can you can or if the money is just smarter money, right? More targeted money, right? More targeted. I know that that my money is going to somebody in South America or Southeast Asia or something like that, and I can see that. And we have the internet now, which can give us somewhat or a minor view into where right. our money's going. Uh, but then realizing that just this, this infra- like, oh, it's not just the money. There is infrastructure problems. It's like a, like a huge portion of the world doesn't have a savings account or is like completely lapped the need of what we would consider in America traditional banking. Right. right. So it's like, so we just understand it and like, oh yeah, like this would work in America, but it's like the, in, in some of these other countries, you're just like, oh, your money is just, your money's getting intercepted along the way. And that's right. Just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree. There's like the idea, what what we perceive as the i think some of the symptoms of what our culture feels like to us which is very consumer based and you know things get easier to do with technology um we miss up, we we interpret those as like the causes of our privilege and they're not mm. um i don't know that's well i mean okay so you I'm also curious, just to continue kind of intercepting your life story, to, to borrow, borrow Brian's word, what what made you want to go get an MBA? Because, like, <laughs> it, it kind of makes sense the way that your career played out, but how did it make sense going into it? Yeah, uh, this is definitely a, a uh, hindsight is 2020 kind of scenario. Um, how it played out, honestly... So I'm a, like I said, I'm a faith person. I just think it was meant to be that way because I think about how I actually ended up in business school. It makes zero sense. Um, I was actually planning to go to seminary directly out of college and was on the course, ready to go. Um, and then learned about this new program at Hopkins first year of a brand new MBA program, different, you know, they're talking all about how it's entrepreneurial and global and all these things. And I said, Oh, that's kind of intriguing. Um, and it might allow me some flexibility to have a, a broader set of skills that applied beyond just roles within the church, which obviously if you're in a seminary path, you're kind of what pigeonholed. Is your, what is your denomination? Uh, Presbyterian. Okay. Yeah. Um, so well, I'm Catholic, so we're fighting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the Catholics. I don't think we're fighting. No, no, <laughs> no, it's just the Catholics in the. Well, it would be. I mean, certain Protestants in Northern Ireland. We're fighting due to your Johns Hopkins affiliation. What's their? Okay. Do they have a sports rival? Hopkins. Yeah. Uh, only in lacrosse. Well, I'm a fan of that school, so that's why, that's <laughs> Virginia, why we're fighting. Virginia, I guess, or Duke oh, would be God. their oh, rivals. I, I don't know. It, I take it back. <laughs> yeah, we're never mind. We're fans of Johns. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> um. 
But yeah, so basically, I mean, long story short, I took the GMAT on a Wednesday. I applied to business school on a Friday. I got in on a Monday. I, I got financial aid on a wait, Thursday, and I said yes on Friday. What? Um, it was just, it was one of those things that, you know, if you if you believe in doors opening or opportunities presenting themselves, this was that. Did God write your recommendation letter? I mean, he must have, I think. The book of Allison. <laughs> yeah. Um, but first, yeah. First letter of Paul to St. John's Hopkins on behalf of Allison. <laughs> exactly. No, it, it was awesome. Um, and, you know, it was really a quick decision. And I think looking back, obviously, it's made a ton of sense given what I've ended up doing. But um, at the time... It really was the thought of, I don't know exactly what I want to do, so I want to keep as many doors open as I can. And an MBA, no matter what you focus on or where it's from or anything, those letters carry weight. Um, And also, at the time, I was 21. So I was a baby going to business school, trying to come out of business school, trying to get a job. And I had the credentials, basically, to make myself seem more official than I was, probably, um, which ended up helping in my career search, so yeah. Um, so you then basically, uh, what? When did you embark on your own? Yeah, so I left my full time work in December of 2015, um, and started traveling full time, and fairly immediately started freelancing and taking contracts with small nonprofits. Um, so it wasn't a business per se. It was more, I want to keep traveling as long as I can. So if people will pay me little bits of money to write some stuff, great. And that will fund the next month of this. Um, so as I was traveling, I was doing these little contracts and slowly started meeting all of these NGOs around the world that were doing amazing work, tended to be local, locally led, small, um, and nobody had ever heard of them and their websites were garbage and they weren't raising any money and they were in a constant struggle of how do we, how do we fund these programs that are actually doing really cool things? Um, and they were tended to be founder led. So basically you had these people who created these programs, whatever they were, who were really good at whatever the programmatic thing was. And they weren't marketers. They weren't fundraisers. They weren't copywriters. They weren't web developers. They were none of these things. They were good at, you know, hunger programs or education programs, or they were school teachers or whatever. And all of a sudden I realized that the work that I had been doing full time for a big organization was actually quite relevant to every organization, but they couldn't afford to keep people on their staff. Uh, So I traveled and kind of percolated this in my head, thinking about it. And when I got back to the States at the beginning of 2017, decided that I would make a go of formalizing this sort of storytelling into a business and kind of would see what would happen. Uh, So my company officially started in March of 2017. Um... And now it's been a couple years and we're still alive. So that's, I guess, the mark (laughs) of a good entrepreneurial venture. And so how does it work? You're basically helping these companies keep their donors apprised of of what they're doing. Is that it? We help help organizations uh, identify, create, and share their stories. So the three pieces of that. Identify would be an organization that hasn't yet really defined what their mission statement is, how they're going to talk about themselves, the language they will use. That is foundational. The second piece is the biggest chunk of what I do, uh, which is creating stories. So I spend a good deal of my time traveling around the world, visiting the recipients of donor funding, meeting them, hanging out, hearing their stories, doing photo shoots, doing interviews, and then turning those stories into 
usable materials across a variety of channels that are donor facing. So websites, blogs, email campaigns, direct mail, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the last is sharing, which is really a digital play more than anything, but helping organizations implement the right tools so that even if you have amazing stories, you have to have the platforms in place so that people will see them. So what are you doing on social media? What, what email platform are you using? What website platform are you using? How can we optimize those? And that's what I do. Do any of these any of these nonprofits need like actual business advice? Where you're like, hold on, before we get to the uh, storytelling <laughs> part, what are you doing? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I will not um, give names, but I have had clients where we were working on initial projects, and after maybe the first kind of identify project, we would say, hey, we love what you're doing, but you have questions you need to answer before we can come in and do anything else. I mean, there. It, before there is a story to share, y- you really do have to have a model in place that's going to work. What, what is the cri- oh, sorry, but what is the criteria you think that would separate you from being like well, this is somebody who we'd want to work with and I think we can work with and move them mo- uh, to versus like move them forward and to yeah. get some development going for them versus one where you're like I'd, I'd love to help you but uh, what, what's going on here isn't going to work. <laughs> for- <laughs> yeah, I mean m- my gut reaction answer to that question has been true my whole career, even from when I started working for nonprofits full time, which is I only will work with organizations that I will willingly donate to independent of work. Um, So that provides a pretty good metric for myself. Um, But actually what that means, um, so you're you know. going to work for like the cigarettes for right. children, <laughs> yeah. jewel pods for everyone yeah, in Thailand. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, no, if I, if I think that the people doing the work are reputable and responsible if I I tend to favor organizations that are permanently on the ground or locally led um, you know in development everyone knows white savior complex and all these things the more we can get away from that the better (laughs) so if there are organizations that whether it's a westerner who has moved permanently to another part of the world or an organization even there's one of my clients is in Chicago serving Chicagoland children so it doesn't have to be far away um and then just proof of concept, basically. So what are you doing? What's your mission? What what has been happening with the business over time? And you you know. I mean, you can go into an organization, and as soon as you get kind of into the weeds, you're like, oh, I have questions. Yeah. Or I'm really excited. This is amazing. So what is, what is the status then of that the kind of um, re- moment of reckoning that I was just mentioning that I think was going on like probably a decade ago, maybe within the last decade, that was reassessing the validity or like the merits and the efficacy of like Western led programs. Is that like, has that tempered and is it now accepted that like, no, this is actually a, a good helpful model. Meaning like, what? Like don't like Western donated money that goes and does something, you know? Um, I mean, it comes back to nuance again. I think, I think that philanthropy, charity, whatever you want to call it, um, isn't, inherently bad i think it it can be handled poorly <laughs> i think that um, that's a relief I, can you imagine if that was inherently bad how much <laughs> inherently worse every other industry would be yeah <laughs> i mean yeah. i mean and for me okay so this is like my personal philosophy on all of this right so i think about my work what i do um i am an outsider i go into communities that are not my own um, typically with people who speak language that isn't my own. I don't look like the people I interview. I don't live like them. Um, and so it would be really easy for me to come in and 
try and prescribe or have answers or come in as the hero in any of these situations. And I think the most valuable thing I've learned is to basically take all of those presuppositions and flip them to the opposite. So I come in and I ask questions. I give zero advice because who am I to give advice? I'm not qualified to do that. Um, my job is to listen and hear their stories and make friends. And truly, I mean, truly at the end of the day, my job is to just make friends with people and have them tell me about themselves. And that's it. But because people are having that philosophical take at things, it also cuts a little bit in another way where people are seeing philanthropy, they're giving their money, but they're also like, they kind of want an ROI on their totally. investment, right? So that they're, 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 as opposed to what should be a spiritual practice of people just giving their money because that's just your, that is your right. Oh, to right. Do like, that. The, the, like the giving is an outgrowth of a, of a genuine sense of some, of something. Right. And is it's a reflection of that as opposed to I'm achieving this end. And I want, and I want my money. It's like I'm not doing this for the sake of doing it. I'm doing it, and I want to see that these outcomes mm. because I have a vested interest in That's that. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think two things come to mind. One is, yeah, there's this whole rise, right, of impact investing and and true investment that you are getting an actual return off of. That's funding interesting projects. The flip side um, is something that I always think about when it comes and kind of gets that spiritual piece is um, kind of the the your nature of supporting the people close to you. So like if you think about your siblings or your parents or your best friends, if they needed something, realistically, you'd give them the money. And it would not be an obligation. It would not be some weird hero effect. It would not be anything. It would just be like, oh, this is someone who needs money to do whatever, to fund an operation, to do whatever. Okay, great, here's the money, done. No questions. What happens is the further people get away from you and your your social circle, you know, if there's rings, right? So first you have your family, then you have your friends, then you have people in your neighborhood, your city, blah, blah, blah. Eventually you get to, hey, random village. Currently, right the second, there's huge flooding in Mozambique and Malawi. And, you know, millions of people are displaced from their homes and unable to work and crop fields have been devastated by hail and it's going to be very problematic for their economy in now and in a few months. Um, but that's really far away. Unless you know someone in Malawi or Mozambique, all of a sudden you giving has to feel like this really charitable, good do-gooder vibe. But what I, my hope and what I do is all of a sudden, if you can shorten the distance between Mozambique, Malawi and New York City or Chicago, where I live, then it feels a little bit more close to, hey, those are my friends or those are people that I have some affinity for. And it makes the giving, I think, a bit more genuine, a bit more honest, a bit less obligatory um, in the way that it would be if it, you were giving to support your friend. Is it, I, I have a, a sensitive question. As a storyteller who does this, can you tell me if you, if you perceive a difference in using, I'm just going to call it guilt, like guilting someone <laughs> yeah. or guilting population versus cr instilling a more like like that connection. Because I think that you can m probably motivate some separation of dollars from a probably already pretty motivated group of people that are going to be prepared to give to something, you know, yeah. um, through guilt, which is kind of like a negative, like you can pay your way out of your feeling right now. Uh -huh. Or you could like create, a, you know, a, a I guess create community or, or, or however the way to phrase it would be. Um, 
Can you perceive like a uh, like a long term difference in in like how those different stories play out? Uh, I can speculate. <laughs> um, I think the guilt side of things is very popular. I mean, we've all seen the commercials of little African babies with distended bellies and flies in their eyes, and it works. There's a reason people do that. It's because it works. However, um, in all of my storytelling, even from very early days in my career, I can't bring myself to do that because I've actually met the people. Um, and they aren't helpless. They are incredible and way stronger than I am and way more optimistic and powerful and joyful and all of these things. And while it's a way harder move to have to keep it positive and celebratory and inspirational, um, I think it's more human. And I think in the long run, my hope would be that it it motivates giving to an equal extent and it for sure is more honoring and dignified for the people receiving money. So, um, yeah, I think guilt is a absolutely a quick fix and there's a reason that organizations do it. It's because the dollars come in. Like it, it really does work, but, um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right move. It's also, well, it also seems like a generational shift too. Cause I think our generation has done a lot more traveling yeah, and, and, for sure. and is aware and they, you know, maybe a previous generation which didn't have the opportunity to travel That's to so point. many places. Mm-hmm. We're just like, oh yeah, like obviously, just the, I've seen this starving child, or you always you your representation of those people is from like a famine in Somalia totally. or whatever like that. Whereas most of we've got like at Fordham University where Lenny and I both went, I, we had a thing called Global Outreach that I was pretty involved in, and it was like a service learning trip. Mm-hmm. And I think what made me feel less bad about Global Outreach is that they kind of do the program explicitly tries to shut down a hero complex mm-hmm. kind of way, right away. And they're like, you're not helping anybody. This is a service. The, this they try <laughs> to, though, but they don't, they didn't convince uh, me. It's a, it's a vacation for rich kids. Oh, uh, yeah, I'll stand by. I was very explicit because I, well, I went on two trips and the first one I went on with, um, my leader, Jean, who was a very, who was a great person, I think, and also is a New York City school teacher currently. She explicitly said that to us up at top. She's like, I know these people. They're our friends. There's a lot of people in, for, we went to Guyana in South America. Uh-huh. And she's like, there's a lot of people in the Guyanese community in New York City. Like, these are just people that we're just going to experience. We'll do service stuff, like, in the sense that we'll do work with a nonprofit organization. But to imagine that you're you're changing the trajectory of Guyana right now is, is right. you're kidding yourself. Well, yeah, let, let me just say though, I, I, I hear that, but I think also it's, it's, it's instructive that the global outreach, pro- this was a big, like, uh, you know, there was an awareness of this at the time at Fordham. Like everyone did a go trip or it was a, it was a commonly done thing, global outreach trip. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I think that there was sort of a burgeoning awareness of like, what are we really doing? And I think that they, when I did it, they were very careful to, um, call out the fact that this is an act of solidarity was mm. what the story they were going with at the time. This is not helping, you know, it was, and I, I guess one of the things I'm interested in, in general in this whole space is the trajectory of these various narratives and, and what mm-hmm. people feel comfortable with, because I think that it was supposed to be helping at some point in the probably distant past. And then it was, and then it became very apparent that like sending yourself who cannot actually build this house is not, more helpful than sending the money so the local people could be paid to For do it. For sure. And so we, but then instead of just doing that, then this, then what they did was they just changed the story, and it bothered me that the actual behavior and the outcome 
didn't change from the days when you were, we're going to help save the world to the days when we just changed the definition. What we're actually doing is experiencing or we're, we're doing an act of solidarity and it's like, okay, but we're still not, we haven't, we haven't amended anything in light of this new awareness, you know? And, and so I, I was very, I'm, I remain very skeptical of the, um, I would just, I would just argue with you in the sense that a lot of the people I worked uh, went with on both my trips ended up going into the nonprofit sphere and mm -hmm. have that attitude and also were like explicit about building relationships. It we, it made a lot more sense than we would send money back directly to a community. Like in my senior year, the trip I led was to El Salvador. We learned, I mean, there's a lot of history in El Salvador and uh, <laughs> and there's a lot of contention about that history now, particularly what's going on in our political narrative about people coming to America from El, El Salvador. Uh, I will not be quoting the president, <laughs> uh, but but, um, but the, a lot of those people ended up going, I would say going into a professional life where previously they might have been involved in like a development effort that would have used, you know, guilt, guiltifying or exploitative practices as totally. opposed to are like, are like, well, now actually I think this isn't solving the problem, but people are still funding nonprofits. So let's think of an actual way that these inputs can more effectively yeah. Uh, affect outcomes. Do you have any uh, feelings on this, Allison? As I mean, a resident yeah, of the space? <laughs> it's 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 a constant struggle, right? I mean, I have come to a point now, having traveled for a decade, where really I just love going to make friends, and they are my real, actual life friends. Like I talk to them all the time, and I I'm torn because, of course, there are from a development perspective and a poverty alleviation perspective, those are not the most effective ways to do anything. Of course, send the money and hire. <laughs> hire local staff who need jobs. Um, however, I think that for me, at least as a young person, that trip changed everything. I mean, it was so eye-opening and so trajectory shifting for me that I'm always hesitant to say like, this doesn't do any good because it does hopefully do something to the people who are traveling. And I tell people now, I'm like, listen, if you're traveling somewhere, be prepared for the difference that it's going to make is going to be in you. It's not going to be in the community that you're serving necessarily. Um, and hopefully you aren't doing harm, but if it's pretty neutral and you come back fundamentally different and all of a sudden more globally minded and conscious about the world around you and um, your perspective has opened up a bit and, and you have developed this heart for um, asking questions and realizing that your perspective has to be more nuanced and knowing that you don't have the answers. I think that for me was a big learning is coming back and being like, Oh, I don't know anything. I mean, <laughs> um, I have a question that is of interest to both of us. What is the, what's it like covering politically uncertain places? And, and like, what, how do you use the political uncertainty of like, in your story forming? Because <laughs> you have to be sensitive to maybe they're going to read it, you know? Uh-huh. I mean, that talk about technology influencing things. Um, I try not to say too many things. I definitely don't take any stances on politics and policies of the countries in which I'm working. I don't know enough to be able to say anything that's at all intelligent most of the time. Um, I will. That applies to most residents <laughs> of every country that has politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't have a voice in, in those political systems. Maybe in the U.S. I can say something, but... Um, you know, when I'm traveling, I'm there for a short period of time and I can recount perhaps somebody else's perspectives who I'm interviewing if that is greatly influencing their their situation or even um, illustrate the facts of particular policies. You know, there is 
food rationing and therefore these people aren't eating. Like that is just a true statement, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but, but things that are a little more actual political, I, I tend to just leave. They're, they're leave also on the mostly side. on the level of just like this group wants power and right. this yeah. other group. Totally. It's like, there's not like a right or wrong. Well, yeah. I mean, have you ever run aground of potentially like uh, a a issue where you're like, oh, this could actually have some fallout? One group is identifiably against a policy that we'd have to implement, or some input, like some inputs that we put into this. Oh, good this. question. Or we'd I mean, be funding a group that has a you know that has a problem with another group. Yeah, right? I have never been in the direct position. I've been in countries where there absolutely is a lot of political instability and. Um, people are fighting over power and there are clients and people I'm interviewing who side with one side or another. Um, Nicaragua being the current primary example of this, there's a ton of instability in Nicaragua and lots of people I work with have very differing opinions. Um, oh, really? So the even the, they're not even unified? No. They're really? Wow. Yeah. We're um, a very Sandinista podcast. <laughs> <laughs> good so to know. Good I to hope know. That, I hope that doesn't. I hope that doesn't uh, ruin your business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's a good example. But again, like ultimately, the people whose stories I'm telling, they're impacted by it. They're not part of it necessarily. So it's more like there are roadblocks. The food can't get to them. There are roadblocks. We're farmers. We can't. Um, move our products to the market or we can't be outside after 3 p.m. Therefore, we can't go to work. Like these are the implications which are just true. Um, and it's kind of separate from the actual policies that are being created. Cool. Um, so uh, finally, the the main event, I guess. Yeah. Um, the experiment that you had in a year, what do you call it? The no-buy year? No-buying, yeah. No-buying. No-buying. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you just shorten it to no buy year. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And uh, best buy, more like no buy. <laughs> <laughs> so the this came to my cognizance because you wrote a, f- a Facebook post, I think, so commemorating the end of it recently. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how did this happen? <laughs> um, so take us through how you got inspired to do it. Um, so yeah. So I had read an article by the author Ann Patchett. Um, who had talked about her own experiences doing a no-buying year and was intrigued um, and just kind of decided on a whim that I might as well try it. Um, And again, I think for some people this is something that is a budgetary exercise or a spending exercise. And for me, it was neither of those things. It wasn't like I'm spending no money on anything. You know, I still ate food. I travel. I do a lot of things that cost money. Um, but I didn't need stuff. Um, and I was m- increasingly aware of just like, there's just stuff everywhere. I have so much of it. I don't need any more. I wonder what would happen if I actually tried to use up some of the things I had before I got anything new. Um, and loosely set a year in my head and kind of, you know, it's a self-imposed challenge. So you kind of think, well, if this doesn't work, then I'll just give up. No (laughs) no one's holding me to it. You're talking about 90% of our goals. (laughs) (laughs) Um, However, I am very much an upholder and a goal setter. And so I'm like, okay, a year, I can do that. Um, And so I did. So for a year, um, all of 2018, I didn't buy anything. Um, And it was actually way, way easier than I expected it to be. So um, I guess... To be perfectly honest, the, I could own the rules for this situation. Again, I made it up. So if you're 
listeners are interested in doing one, they can make up their own rules. <laughs> um, basically, I could only purchase um, what I called consumables, so things that actually get used up, shampoo, my mascara, whatever, if I used up everything in my house that was in that category. So for eight months, I used... Um, mini hotel shampoo bottles that were in like a Rubbermaid in my closet that I just had kept there for years. And I'm like, dang it, technically this is shampoo. So I have to use it until it's all gone and then I can buy a new shampoo bottle. Um, So yeah, I bought a mascara and an eyeliner and in November I bought a shampoo and conditioner. Wow. Okay. So that's really interesting because so it's, it's, it's not not buying. It's basically, it's a radical focus on the utility of everything you are buying. Because your food technically falls in that same category. Right. And so it's, it's authorized to buy something if it's, um, if it's something that you will gain a, a direct utility out of. Yes. And so it's totally permissible to like engage in the economy. What's, what, what's being focused on by this essentially meditation is how much value am I getting out of everything? How much value and like, do I need it? You know, there's so many things that at least I'll speak for myself in a shopping kind of culture. Um, you just buy stuff. You're like, Oh, this is cool. I'll just buy it. Or you just go on Amazon and order something and you're like, great, cool. And then you get it and you sort of use it maybe, or it sits on your shelf or you use half of it. If it's a use kind of thing, or, you know, I would order books all the time, which are my pride and joy of my life. Um, but also, I belong to a library, and so I didn't read any fewer books. I just got all my books from the oh library. <laughs> yeah, I've been. I'm in a similar track where Meg. Well, I'm getting married in, in the summer. Congratulations! Thank, thank you very much. But she's a person who's like I. I have always been a big book person. Obviously, you can see my books, mm-hmm. but I'm kind of making a similar challenge to myself where I'm like, I do have to get rid of some of these books that I live in a small New York City apartment. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to. Yeah, so I'm. She and she also does. She's like, why do we have this many books? And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm like, do I really need? I do love my. This books. is a called down collection, by the way. Vastly, yeah, this, he, he, this whole wall. I'll like show that. you a picture of my living room. It's <laughs> a special thing. Um, but I'm trying to in the practice of doing it. I'm trying to read books and then I post about them. Sometimes I give them away to friends or love I just go that. to the library. So yeah. that's like, if, if people want it, I'll be like, I finished this book. You know, to like just now, I'll just give it out to the universe right. as opposed to me just. You know, using a site like Amazon where I'm like, well, it's only, it's $5. Just, right. like, just send it. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. Send it. Send it. <laughs> hey, send it, internet. Send it. <laughs> Smash. Well, and it makes it so easy to do. I mean, you have, I have, you know, Prime with one click and it's like, all right, here you yeah. go. It's coming to my house yeah. and it's Ooh, great. Ooh, interesting. So how does, how does the not consuming thing work with a Prime membership? I know. So um, you, ha- you have to shift behaviors. At least I had to shift behaviors in order to keep true to this. So I didn't go on Amazon ever. I had Prime because I had, you know, TV shows and stuff. But um, I did not go into a Target for a year because I know myself and I can't go into a Target and not spend money. It's just that is fundamentally not possible. Um, Yeah. So you just have to kind of keep yourself away from the places where you know you have no willpower. (laughs) I love Uh, the irony of you being a marketer and being a marketer's worst nightmare. (laughs) No, but this also is like like getting... (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry, but just it would be like everyone who's trying to sell something would be like, oh, this is yeah. our, this is the, if people catch on to this trend, then we're done. It's terrible. I write <laughs> like, email campaigns and I'm like truly like delete, delete, unsubscribe, delete, no yeah. ads, get them out. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it really is like a, a journey into the dark id that marketing kind of tries to exploit, you know, yeah. but, you, but it, you know, it helps to, to scrub that out in yourself so that. You know, it makes it easier to exploit this weakness in other people. <laughs> <laughs> I am a marketer myself. In fact, I'm a content marketer, and I 
totally. I mean, part of the job itself requires living in that because you know some of the tricks and you know it. it, it yeah. Um, what was easy and what was challenging? What surprised you about it? Yeah. So, as a whole, it was way more easy, way easier than I thought it would be. Um, truly, and so I, I may have said this, but at the time. I was living in a house that my parents owned that they, my parent. long story short, my parents moved to Asia. They left a house basically furnished empty. And so I was living in this house. Um, and so the house had a lot of stuff that was mine and a lot of stuff that was my family's and things that people hadn't touched for a while. Basically, um, a wealth of objects for my use. Um, so... I wasn't starting from like, I own no possessions and I'm going to add no possessions. I had tons of stuff. And I think the important thing in relation to kind of Marie Kondo mindset that we have now is it wasn't even so much I have to get rid of the stuff I have. It was just let's take a pause, not add anything to the stuff I have and actually use the belongings that I have acquired. And and starting with seeing the things you yeah. already have. Yeah, yeah you have Even no idea. Them. You have no idea. And I mean, I'll speak for myself again, but you go in your closet, there are always drawers and cabinets. You're like, what is this? And then you have to go through the exercise of like, oh, I need to find whatever it is. I don't know. Cotton balls. Great example. Okay. I wonder if they're in this house. Probably. Let me like open some yeah, cabinets yeah, and see yeah. if I can find them. Because it would be me, as opposed to going to the. I would just go, go to, to the, the store. store. I would go exactly. To the, like, before and then I'd get home and I'd be like, "Well, now I have two. Or yeah. Just shout to Alexa uh, to uh, order them. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Actually, Brian, Brian, uh, the, the most conspiracy theory minded person I know, not only owns an Alexa, but even had those like dash wands. Oh were, the, my gosh! It's just a it's just a little RFID button, then you press and, and Tide shows up. <laughs> or no, it's dog food shows up. No, it's not, no, I don't have the one for dog food. I have the one for bounty bounty paper. Patels, which sorry, also bouncy. makes me a horrible person, <laughs> a climate conscious person. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you ever have to like MacGyver stuff together? Like if there's no cotton balls, then like I'll use this old yes. uh, cat. This <laughs> old cat. Never an old cat, thankfully. Um, yeah. The best example I have is with clothes. I would I had to learn how to fix some clothes because I couldn't buy new. Um, I by nature, I like just regularly only own a few pair of jeans at a time. Just I don't know, just a thing. And my favorite pair of jeans ripped in an unsolvable way. <laughs> and I was like, what do I do? I truly had a little crisis of conscience. I'm like, do so I you buy? started a trend. The ripped <laughs> jean, the ripped yes. knee trend. That's how I, it started. It's all me. <laughs> yep, all me. No, I had this moment of like, okay, technically, technically, I have used up these pants. I can buy new to replace them. However, it felt a little cheating. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, well, I have other pants. I just don't like them very much. So I wrote a note to the company, which is one of my favorite brands called Fashionable. It's based in Nashville. Um, and said, hey, I love these jeans. They're, very, they're a socially responsible company. They employ women around the world, blah, blah, blah. I love these pants. I ripped them. I'm really sad. Do you have suggestions of how to repair them or patch them or whatever and they said hey can you send us a picture i said sure sent a picture and they sent me a new pair of jeans wow. for free nice, nice. and wow. i mean it was literally i've never been so grateful for an object ever um because <laughs> i want i you know when you aren't getting anything new that one new thing yeah. is the biggest deal ever and this was like in june so i had already been doing it for six months i was so excited i was so grateful to the brand i'm posting on instagram like this is the best company <laughs> they're awesome um and 
it proved to me again the importance of where we buy, which I think is a big lesson coming out of this too, is had it been the gap or whatever, like who was I going to email? You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. don't know, Gap customer service, I guess. <laughs> and then um, be like, are you serious? <laughs> like, Sorry. <laughs> like, go to the Gap. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we know they rent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and no, you know, I own Gap clothes. No hatred to them. But um, just being conscious of, I, I knew where they had come from. I knew that they were a, a company that not only made really well-made products, but also cared about their customers and cared about their their employees and all these things. I mean, that was a huge win. This podcast brought to you by Fashionable. Yeah, yeah. for sure, <laughs> for sure. Honestly, the first the first actual company that we shout out and think we sponsor, but actually sends us a product that will that will be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it won't happen, but <laughs> let's exploit these generous people. Hey, <laughs> I, I also need new pants. No, it was yeah, it was really really kind of them. So and and good customer service move on their part because now I'm so brand allegiant. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah well, totally. True. And also everyone else that you know. Who right. Exactly. Yeah. So you'd you'd advocate. So after this, you'd you'd advocate for this lifestyle. For sure. Because okay. so it's it, imp- basically it impossible for me getting married <laughs> right now. Like <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting though because uh, we were joking before about how like uh, you know you have like a bunch of wedding registry stuff in this in this uh, room, and um, you know you like don't really want it. It's right. Like, well, it's very frustrating. I guess how would you say? And maybe you ran into this problem because I think in such a consumerist society and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We're getting married in June, and I have relatives of another generation, the generation that saw the flies on babies mm-hmm. advertisements, and <laughs> and I'm not correlating the two, but maybe let's think about it. But they're worse. <laughs> um, but the uh, but we put stuff on a registry. What I thought was a lot of stuff that mm-hmm. I, and stuff that you know maybe you take advantage of this once in a lifetime opportunity right. to, to get stuff that you want for your, your home in the future. At the same time, I'm like, I don't really want anything more than this. I don't need, I live in a, I live in New York city. It's just like, I have a limited amount of space. Right. And to me, it's just like, I just don't really want stuff. I don't I like the stuff I like are my books and my Nintendo. And that's <laughs> like the, and my computer. Like, like those are the three things I like. And I, I'm, you have them. I'm, I have them. Like so, it's like so. <laughs> Brian is a precocious thirteen-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like to read and play Mario. Uh. Um, but uh, but so it, it's it's a very it's been a challenge for me because that generation of people is when our registry was is, they're saying they're, oh there's not enough stuff on here. Mm. I'm like this feels like an insane amount of stuff. This stuff would be given in any other place in time. This would be a treasure trove of stuff right. for people. But just explaining to them that I don't want any more stuff is yeah. very challenging. So did you ever have any challenges like that? Where yeah. Like- I had many people ask if they were allowed, many people, my parents' friends, ask if they were allowed to like drop things off on my front porch. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to say no to a present necessarily, but also that's not the point, you know? Um, and I think, I mean, quick aside on the wedding registries, feel free to cut this. But basically... There is a there is also a difference of people getting married. I'm 30, so when we're 30 versus when you were 21, and you literally didn't own anything. Right. So right. that's what our parents well, that's or grandparents' generation might have in mind of like, oh, you need kit everything in your kitchen. I'm like, I have a I live by myself. I have a fully stocked kitchen. 
That's well, exactly. That's what I'm trying to articulate. Yeah, I think our generation stuff is cheaper now. Objectively, totally. because of globalization and a lot of other yep. factors, stuff is cheaper. So they came from a generation of inflation, where it's right. like it made a difference to buy this stuff totally. now, and because you'd keep that stuff. But we live in a little bit of a disposable culture, which is why your experiment was about. Right. But I'm like, you know what? I'm short on is money. Like, <laughs> I live in a very expensive place, and it's hard yep. to come by. <laughs> like, so, in addition yeah. to giving money to what's the name of that company? Fashionable. Also give it to Brian because he go. needs money. Yeah. <laughs> But I guess I think our generation is a generation that is, you know, uh, like uh, I think that's the problem and explaining, articulating yeah. that to a different is like, I don't really need this stuff. Like right. this stuff is totally. Yeah. And so interestingly, not being able to buy anything and being someone who wants to give gifts is always interesting. Um, but maybe five years ago, I made a shift to only giving experiences. So hmm. for, yeah. It's got to be a while now. I've given experience only, Christmas presents, birthday presents, everything. Um, and it's awesome because scientifically we've proven that experiences uh, are more happiness creating than stuff. Um, there's lots of data on that. But then also giving experiences is awesome because it tends to be more appreciated, I think, by people in our generation. Um, it's a way to get around the question of like, I actually need cash, but that's a super boring or lame gift i guess i don't know um, to afford an experience right brian's, <laughs> like, experience. brian's like don't listen to her <laughs> um and it's just fun you know like okay i'll give people concert tickets or um to a show that they might not ever choose to go to themselves or even plane tickets or hotel in this cool city or whatever yeah. um and it's been really a great way for me to find a middle ground of I like giving people stuff. I like the act of generosity. Um, but also I know that I don't want any more crap and probably no one I know does either. And so unless it's something that is like this is your dream, I right. might as well give you an experience instead. And I think the, the one of the insights that like tech culture has given us is that it's all – it's all on a, a means to an experience. Like if yeah. you give someone a, a physical gift, you're trying to give them experience. So cut the middleman out, give right. them the experience directly. And then totally. It's also, I mean, and I they're probably not going to experience it too. That's the problem. Like if they were <laughs> going to experience right. the gift, which is why a book is a good gift because it, right. you know, it's a built in experience, experience, even though it actually is a assuming they read it. Right. You're giving <laughs> them, a, you're giving them a potential experience. But that's right. no different than concert tickets. Yeah, totally. Um, I just feel like the, the other generation, I think it's the, the millennials are killing X industry is like, is, is highlighted by this conversation. Yeah. It's like, well, the millennials are killing Applebee's or whatever it is. Like, well, no, <laughs> millennials no. don't like Applebee's. <laughs> it sucks. And as an experience is bad. <laughs> so, like, That's the thing. Every the, like, time I, every, I have not ever come across a story about millennials are killing this industry and not been like, yes, we are. Good. <laughs> good. Fuck that uh, let's take that industry out and, and execute it yeah. in the street. Yeah. I mean, but, but in the flip side, to be serious about this, it is complicated because if we are, which I don't think we're quite there yet. But if we as a generation are truly consuming less, that does have large implications for mm -hmm. the economy, of course, and the production economy, which impacts the whole world. Um, and I don't have an answer to that or a solution. Um, I only know my little part of like, I can't deal with more stuff. I need to get rid of it or at least use what I have. Um, but yeah, obviously there is that question in, in mass if this truly becomes a thing what does that mean? You know, what does that mean for everybody who's making all the stuff that we previously had been buying? I, I, that's true. I'm not, 
I'm not concerned about that at all. Or like that that idea doesn't inspire any concern in me because we changing the economy from a, as consumptive as it is is like essential. Just because there's totally. gonna be, there's going to be fewer people making stuff regardless. In other societies, it's it is possible to have less of a emphasis on having money and on consuming. And I think that it's pretty important that we get to a point like that. Um, for spiritual health also, I don't know, I could go on about, like, I think that the negative spiritual effects consumerism has on, like, the nature, like, I feel like everything is just an extension of marketing now. Like, oh, totally. Briefly, <laughs> briefly name some of the other challenges uh, that you oh impose gosh. on yourself. Yeah, so I, I don't... Shameless. Need... Kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're <So>. good. <laughs> um, I, one month a year, eat zero sugar. Um February, the shortest month. <laughs> Last year I did do February because I was a cop out. But this year I did January very strictly and I have stayed with it since then. So wow. um, no sugar. Um, it's a Q, It's a quarterly thing. Now. Uh, apparently. And um, you get that because you're an MBA person. <laughs> yeah. Um, I read 50 books a year as a rule, like as a, as a goal. I mean, a very measurable one. Um, I wake up at 5:28 every day, which is what? terrible Why? and amazing. How do you? How did you come across? How that are number? you awake right now? <laughs> you know, um, so I have a lot of jobs as an entrepreneur, and anyone who's in entrepreneurial ventures knows the business is you. You are the business. Therefore, you have to figure out how to make the time work. And for a while, this was definitely a side hustle type of situation, um, and so you have to find time when you can find it. And for me, early mornings ended up being the better option than late nights. I tend to be kind of a grandma when I go to bed. <laughs> um, so started waking up very early, and it was one of those that there was an alarm on my phone from, I don't know, some flight or something right, that was right. 528, and I'm like, great, this this works, and then it's just stayed. Um, so That is so chill and so regimented at the same time. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like yes, and it's I like really am a little psycho about my morning routines because it's it's very much a routine um for as much adventure and exploration and flexibility as i have when i'm home it is like okay 528 i get up i drink coffee out of the same blue mug that i got in haiti i open my blinds i sit in the same spot i do like it is a, a pattern um which is watch judge wapner at uh, <laughs> noon that's from, that's from rain man um <laughs> This has, you know, because this has been an experience. <laughs> I'm motivated right now. I've, uh, I, I feel very, very good. I want to catch up. My goal is to read 33. I'm going to, I'm 32, going to turn, I'm going to turn 32 in a, 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 at the end of next week. Okay. So between 32 and 33, I'm going to read 33 books. I so, love that. So, so you've just blown out mine by 17. No. Okay. I will, I will make this aside before we end for reading goals because I love books. I love reading. Um, I know my goal is very large, but truly, if you want to read more, um, any goal I think helps, even if it's like I'll read four books this year or You'll whatever is number. a thing. Like yeah. picking a number and then saying that number to other people, I think really helps because all of a sudden, then someone's going to ask you, "Hey, did you read four books? Did you right. read twelve books? Whatever your thing is." Um, so thirty-three, like, like a good it. nonprofit professional, you've made your goal measurable. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I can. I know all about goal setting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Allison Kuzer, uh, do you have anything to plug? Oh, sure. Um, you can check out if you're a nonprofit person looking for clients. <laughs> My company is <laughs> called Swell and Good. Um, other things to plug. Um, I have a website that is not very updated, but has some interesting musings on life and travel. It's called coozertravels.com. My last name, K-O-O-S-E-R, travels.com. 
Um, and yeah, Instagram, I guess, would be the other place that I do the most things. That's, I guess, another habit. I do one post a day on Instagram as an exercise to find something in every day to be grateful for or celebrate, nice. even if it's a boring day. So nice. my Instagram handle is ALKuzer. Nice. And that's that. Awesome. Throw those follows that way and, and check out uh, Allison's website or business. Yeah. Allison, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Thank you. Al- Thanks, Allison. Thanks, guys.